this idea that you can speak things into your life and somehow make these positive things happen is nowhere found in scripture or in historic Christianity. Let me give you an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with cords. I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers and danger from robbers and danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, without food and cold, exposure and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Now you would think that the Apostle Paul somewhere along there would make positive declarations to change his life. Yet he did not. Because that is not real. That is not real life. And the truth is that the Apostles endured things in their life that were harsh but nowhere along the way that they make anything as positive declarations to change their circumstances because that's not real. That's not a real life. That is a fantasy. It's almost a superstition. Yet that has become commonplace parlance in American evangelical religion. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for April 15th, 2018. Today, Brother Omar brings us a message called have nothing to do with silly myths. Brother Omar says that we as Christians need to be mindful and aware of many modern beliefs as a lot of them are myths and simply not true. He calls these beliefs fantasy religion. Now, Brother Omar gives us the formula to steer clear of these untruthful, dangerous beliefs so that we can be effective in God's work. Now he'll be reading from the book of 2 Corinthians, so grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's Word here on Followers of the Way. And for the past couple of months we have been teaching our way through our statement of faith and our conviction as a church has been that God has given us a revelation. That God has spoken to us and that where God has spoken, that that is our authority. And we believe that God has spoken to us in His Word. In other words, whatever God has had to say to mankind, He put it in this book, which has been preserved all down the ages down to us. Now we know that nature reveals that there is a God. Honest men will tell you that when they look at the sky, when they look at the trees, they know that there is a God or something or some intelligence brought that about. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So the Apostle Paul says that even the heathen man, the, the natural man, the man that does not know anything about the Bible and the things that he sees um, is revealed to him that there is a God. His power and His attributes are revealed in the things that are made. And even though that is, that natural revelation is not enough 
for human beings to begin a relationship with God. So we have what we call an, a special revelation. God has disclosed himself in his word. He has spoken to us in scripture. So because of that, the Bible is inerrant, infallible, it's perfect, it's without error, and it has authority. It binds our conscience. Only the Bible can bind your conscience. The famous event that happened during the Reformation that Martin Luther was called to recant from his teaching. He basically said, you know, the things that I have written, you know, even my enemies think there are good things, you know, proper for Christian living. But if I can be convinced by reason or by the Word of God, then I'll change my mind. If not, my conscience is bound by God's Word. And to go against conscience is not good or proper. So Martin Luther says that only God's word, even the tradition of the church and the ecclesiastical church tradition, he says, that does not bind your conscience. Only God's word binds your conscience because it's authoritative. It's God's truth. So we have been working our way through that and speaking on the doctrine of God. We talked about who God is, what the Bible reveals about God. God is three persons. He's a trinity. We talked about the deity of Jesus Christ, and we began speaking about some of the heresies that have come up throughout the years, uh, like Arianism and so forth. And today I was supposed to teach on the issue of the Jehovah's Witnesses and what they teach and the false view that they have on God. But I'd like to take a break from that uh, today and speak a little bit about certain things that have been on my mind concerning things that are happening, the church, uh, and where should we go, etc. For the longest time, I have understood that the popular form of Christianity that we see in America, or that has been mainstreamed in America, it's evolved into a, a fantasy-type religion that has no bearing in real life. It doesn't correspond to real life, and it has no relevance to Scripture. Now, I know that's a very hard statement, but I want to give you an example of some of the things that, and, and I don't have to look for these things anymore. They, they come to you now. So I was watching a clip of an interview that they were giving to Joel Osteen. I know Joel Osteen is kind of low-hanging fruit, but this is from a book he wrote, I Declare, 31 Promises to Speak Over Your Life. This is what he says. He says, I declare I am special and extraordinary. I'm not average, I have been custom made. I am one of a kind. Of all the things God created that what he is the most proud of is me. I am his masterpiece, his most prized possession. I will keep my head held high knowing that I'm a child of the most high God made in his very image and this is my declaration. What I find amazing about that is that he is saying these things, being interviewed by Oprah and speaking to a secular audience. The, the intention of this book is that anybody can pick this book and read it, and you have 31 days to declare things over your life, and one of which is, is this that he just said. So if, if you don't know Christ, and you're not saved, you can pick up this book and you can begin to give yourself these declarations. He goes on to say, I declare a legacy of faith over my life. I declare that I will store up blessings for future generations. I declare breakthroughs are coming in my life, sudden bursts of God's goodness, not a trickle, not a stream, but a flood of God's power, a flood of healing, a flood of wisdom, a flood of favor, 
Don't use your words to describe a situation. Use your words to change your situation. Now, all of this is based on this notion that you can speak things into existence, right? If you make declarations over your life, that somehow these things can begin to happen. In his book, Your Best Life Now, this is what he says, words are similar to seeds. By speaking them aloud, they are planted in your subconscious mind and they take on a life of their own. They take root, they grow, they produce fruit of the same kind. If we speak positive words, our lives will move in that direction. Similarly, negative words will produce poor results. So what he's saying is this, if you just simply speak things that are positive, those things, the words that you're saying will begin to give birth to positive things in your life. Now, you can read, putting aside the Bible, the entire body work of the early church fathers. You can read Augustine's writing. You can read Aquinas. You can read Martin Luther, John Calvin's Systematic Theology, the writing of the Wesley boys. And you will not find this anywhere in historic Christian teaching. This idea that you can speak things into your life and somehow make these positive things happen is nowhere found in scripture or in historic Christianity. Let me give you an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with cords. I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers and danger from robbers and danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea. Danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, without food and cold, exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Now you would think that the Apostle Paul somewhere along there would make positive declarations to change his life. Yet he did not. Because that is not real. That is not real life. And the truth is that the apostles endured things in their life that were harsh, but nowhere along the way that they make anything as positive declarations to change their circumstances, because that's not real. That's not a real life. That is a fantasy. It's almost a superstition. Yet that has become commonplace parlance in American evangelical religion. That's commonplace. Now, not only would you not find this in scripture, but this teaching that you can speak things into existence goes all the way back to the 1800s. There's a man by the name of Phineas Quimby. He was a, a hypnotist and an occultist, a so-called American spiritualist. And he taught the diseases and ailments or a product of bad thinking. He called it New Thought was the name of his movement. And the idea was that what you think in your mind affects your matter. 
And so the reason why people are sick, the reason why you have ailments in your life is because you have bad thinking which is corrupting your body and making you sick. So the solution, the cure for your diseases and for your sickness is to simply change the way that you think, mind over body. This was taught in New England. And Quimby actually began his own healing ministry, not ministry, but his own healing tours. And he went around New England, supposedly healing people of different ailments and so forth, none of which is verified, obviously, almost always the case. And then one of the persons that he healed temporarily, quote unquote, was a woman by the name of Mary Eddie Baker. And she went on to found something called Christian Science, which is not Christian or science. And she also taught that diseases were things that were affected by your mind and began to teach that as Christianity. And eventually that worked its way into the Christian church. You may have heard the term law of attraction. There's books written on it. If you, if you think and set your minds in positive things, those things will be attracted. These ideas were later mixed with Christian language and introduced into the church by Norman Vincent Peale in his book, The Power of Positive Thinking, and later on by Robert Schuller of the Crystal Cathedral and so on. Now, this is all superstition. It's not real. I have known people that refuse to say that they're sick. Even though they're sick, they, they say that they're not sick because they believe that by saying it that they will become sick more. <laughs> I mean, they, they go to a doctor who do tests on them and say that they're sick, but they don't want to say they're sick because they get more sick. Many of these people eventually die of whatever disease that they have. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says this. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. The Reina Valera uses the word fábulas profana de viejas, old ladies, fables. I was listening to, again, this stuff comes to you now, okay? This is stuff that I find in my social media places. I was listening to a clip that somebody posted from Stephen Furtick, which astonishingly to me is the Southern Baptist Church. I didn't know that his church was a Southern Baptist Church. Um, I don't know you could be in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and still teach what he teaches. This is, this is what he says. This is from a sermon or a clip that says, learning to love yourself. You cannot love God or others until you learn to love yourself. You cannot love God or others until you learn to love yourself. The problem with you is that you don't love yourself enough. He went on to say that he asked God in prayer to help him not to be so hard on others. And God answered to him, spoke to him, and said, you need to stop being so hard on yourself. Now, the idea that our problem is that we love ourselves is almost entirely opposite, completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Paul's description, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, is the problem that you and I have is that we love ourselves. That's our problem. That is the description of sinful humanity is that people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, 
brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Your problem, my problem, is not that I don't love myself enough. It's that I love myself too much. You don't have to learn to love yourself. You already do. The message of Jesus Christ is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Paul says, it's not I who lives, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I live now, I live by faith in Christ Jesus. Now this idea comes from psychology. It's not Christianity, it's psychology. Which, by the way, people have this idea that psychology is like a science. Psychology is not a science. Psychology is a set of beliefs and theories. It's, it's really a religion. If you, really, if, you, if you know the history of psychology, it's our religion. And that's not my opinion. This is from Thomas Sass, who's a psychiatrist. He says this. He says, it, psychology is not merely a religion that pretends to be a science. It is actually a fake religion that seeks to destroy true religion. Psychotherapy is a modern scientific sounding name for what used to be called the cure of souls. With the decline of religion and the growth of science in the 18th century, the cure of souls, which had been an integral part of the Christian religions, were recast as the cure of minds and became integral part of medicine. In other words, what he's saying is that psychology is more or less a wish-doctoring type system of religion, religious faith. The father of modern psychology is a man by the name of Sigmund Freud, who was a heathen hypnotist who hated the Christian faith wrote extensively against Christianity. And his student was a man by the name of Carl Jung, who was a spiritualist who professed to have a spirit guide. These are the founders of this science. He professed to have a, a spirit that guided him. Now, in the 20th century, the, the Christians in the early times understood this. But sometime in the 20th century, it was decided that Christianity and psychology could be mixed together and we had the birth of something called Christian psychology, which is a multi-million dollar industry. What they were saying back then, it was that the Bible was good for certain issues that were spiritual. But there were other issues of mental health, like addictions and so forth, that were better managed by professionals. So you have something that the church had never seen before called Christian counseling and counselors and therapists and marital therapists. I mean, if you were having marital problems in the days of the Apostle Paul and you went to Paul, he was not going to send you to a counselor. But today, churches have these professionals who go to school who are dedicated to give counseling. And all of these things are based on ideas that come from psychology. They study psychology. Their schools are financed by psychologists. Yet their ideas are not even different from secular psychology. In fact, the Christian Association for Psychological Studies, this is an organization, says this, we're often asked if we're Christian psychologists and find it difficult to answer, and we don't know what the question implies. We're Christians who are psychologists, but at the present time, there is no acceptable Christian psychology that is markedly different from non-Christian psychology. It is difficult to imply that we function in a manner fundamentally distinct from our non-Christian colleagues, and yet there is not an acceptable theory, mode of research, or treatment of methodology that is distinctly Christian. In other words, we're doing what they're doing. There's no, we're not doing anything different. James Dobson 
and from Focus on the Family has actually said that many pastors are just simply not equipped to deal with the issues of the 21st century of mental health. And for that, they need professional training in psychology. Now, one of the, the distinctions of psychology is that it denies sin. Sinfulness is denied in psychology. So what used to be drunkenness, when you, in the old days you were a drunkard, now you have an alcohol addiction. So you're no longer a drunkard. You used to be a lustful person, now you have a sexual addiction. You needed to repent, but now you need therapy, a psychology. So the Bible has been placed aside and professional ideas, so-called science, have been brought forth and the Bible has taken a back seat. J. Vernon McGee warned about this. He says, so-called Christian psychology is secular psychology clothed in pious platitudes and religious rhetoric. He went on to say, if the present trend, this is from 1986, was written, if the present trend continues, Bible teaching will be totally eliminated from Christian radio stations as well as from TV and the pulpit. This is not a wild statement made in an emotional moment of concern. Bible teaching is being moved to the back burner of broadcasting while so-called Christian psychology is put up front as Bible solution for life's problems. This is 1986. See, the, the idea of psychology is that they have the cures for the ailments of the soul. That's what the psyche means. It means soul. Psychology is the study of the soul. Yet you and I both know there is only one thing that can cure the ailments of our souls, and that's God's Word. It's God's Word. This stuff is not real. You know it's not real. And we know it because we see what's happening in the church today. It's, it's, a, it's a story. It's not reality. It's not based on anything real. It's not based on God's Word, so the effect is not real. So, underlining all of this is the idea that the Bible is not enough, that we need something more. The question is, what did the church do before psychology? How did we get around all this time, all these years, 2,000 years, without it? Imagine you went to Paul and told him that you're having these different issues. There was no psychologist back then. There was no professional help. Paul would send you to the very same place that we need to go, and that's God's Word. The only thing that can fix the ailments of our soul is God's Word. The only thing that can cure our addictions is God's Word, which calls us to repentance. So why am I telling you all this? I firmly believe, I firmly believe that the religion that evolved during the 20th century, the Christianity that has, that has that has been handed down from the 20th century down to us today, and here we are almost 20 years into the 21st century, is a superstitious type false religion. And I believe the time has come for those who want to be faithful to the teachings of God's Word and provide true healing and hope to those that are in need and be witnesses to Christ in our society. It's time to disassociate ourselves with this mainstream popular evangelical religion. Now, when I say that, I don't mean we you know, block people or break fellowships. We don't do that. People are people. If you profess the name of Christ, we love you. You're our brother. As simple as that. That's what Paul says, because God loves his people regardless of where they are. But as a church, as, as, a, as a local church, and not only us, we're not special, we're not great. 
We're not, we're not anointed people here. But as a church, if we want to be faithful, faithful to God's word, and faithful to his witness and testimony, we cannot continue to associate ourselves with this mainstream, popular, evangelical religion. Even the name evangelical doesn't mean what it's supposed to be. It doesn't. It's a completely different thing that the Bible teaches and history, and Christian history, teaches. Now, we don't repudiate the doctrines of the evangelical church, right? We, we hold to justification by faith, the deity of Jesus Christ, all those teachings, the inerrancy of Scripture, we hold to as a church, but at the movement, what it has evolved into, is something that we can no longer perpetuate. We can't do that. Because we've been coexisting and sharing this name all these years. Every time you look in television, every time you hear criticism about what the evangelical church is or what they do or don't do, I say to myself, that's not who I am and that's not what the scripture reveals. That's a completely different group of people. The word lost its meaning in this country. It served its purpose. It no longer carries any weight. It is no witness. The only thing we seem to be good for is to elect Republican presidents. That's the only thing we're good for, apparently. So evangelicalism, the word, has lost its meaning. And we need to, as a church that wants to be a faithful witness, we need to disassociate ourselves, and we need to begin to stand in the truth of God's word. And that does not mean, like I say, breaking fellowship with people. We're not special. We're not better. But it means that we should have it in the back of our minds always, that we're going to stand true to God's word and that the movements that are out there that, that are throwing these things at us now, because it used to be you actually had to turn on a television or do something. Now this stuff comes to you. You see, I see every day I, I scroll through my Facebook thing. This is all I see, all I see. And like I said, many of the things that, I, that you hear out there are almost entirely made up myths. And it's almost like the, the Christianity has been reduced to these little uh, small meme verses that are supposed to sound profound or something. And that people post. And we're skipping entire uh, Christian truth. It's being completely glossed over. And the Apostle Paul calls us, commands us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. To this end, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Then he goes on to say, command and teach these things that no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So Paul gives you what is the answer to the silly myths. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but train yourself for godliness. How do we do this? Verse 11. Command and teach 
these things. Now, this is an advice to a pastor, a young pastor. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith and in purity. In other words, command and teach the doctrine of the apostles. Not only do that, but also to set an example in conduct and in speech. Now, we live in a day that a lot of our conduct and a lot of speech, sadly enough, happens online. Happens on social media. So Paul is saying, set an example in speech and in conduct. In other words, be discerning of the things that you see and the things that you share that may be propagating silly myths. And set an example in purity. Now, he's, listen to what he's saying. He's not saying, I need you to go out and you should post all these things. And I need you to uh, tell people that this is false. I need you to condemn this, people, this guy as a heretic. He's not doing that. How do, you, how do you counteract this? You set an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. Not only uh, purity of conduct, but also doctrinal purity. Until I come, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Now, the public reading of Scripture was something that was done in the early church because you couldn't get this at a store. You couldn't go down to Rome and buy a Bible in the store. The only place that you were going to hear God's Word was in church. So the churches began to read God's Word publicly. So you will have a guy here. He'll be like, okay, uh, Chapter 5, and he will read the whole thing, and, the, and then you will hear it. That's how you do the scriptures. So when he says, devote yourself to the public reading of scriptures, he is saying, devote yourself to reading the Bible. Devote yourself to read the Bible, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which has been given you by prophecy with the counsel of the elders laid hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In other words, pay attention to what you preach and teach, because if you do, not only are you going to save the people that hear you, but also you're going to save yourself. In other words, it's very important, very important, that, that we teach and that what we preach has to be biblical truth. Has to be biblical truth. I like the fact that he, he emphasizes with the teaching is the practice. And then the immersion of yourself in them. Immerse yourself. Swim in these things. Day in and day out, you swim in them. So that others may see your progress. And keep a close watch. Everything is, has to do with attention, detail, watch, observe. Be discerning. Study it. Write it down. Detail. You know, very, very bookish stuff that he's saying. You see, and, and this is hard work. That's why we don't do it. It's much easier to go and tell somebody, you're having a bad time, go ahead and declare yourself something, <laughs> rather than 
meeting with that person and meeting their needs. Because if somebody has a drinking problem, it's much easier to send them to somebody else rather than to sit there and open God's word and go through the hard work of having God's work change that life. That's hard work. John Wesley, when he was preaching, he, he organized his whole ministry in class meetings. You know, Wesley would go and preach in a bar and everybody gets saved and they'll close the bar and he'll turn it into a class meeting. And the class meeting, the way it was organized is that you went there day in and day out and you went to a period of church discipline and discipleship and you had to go there and, and they work with you and they work with you until they got you into the kingdom of God and then sanctification. It, it, it takes years in some occasions to change your life because it's work. But it's much easier in all culture to send somebody to somebody else and to gloss over. So we've developed a fantasy type religion that glosses over people rather than doing the dirty work of soul winning. They used to call it, that's how it used to be. What are you doing? I'm going soul winning. That's how it was back in the days. That's how the Baptists used to say it. I'm winning a soul. There is a soul there that needs to be won and changed. We don't, even, we don't even have souls anymore. I don't know what we call them, people, whatever. Soul winning. He that wins souls is wise, the Bible says. So as a church, as a church going forward, we need to keep that in our minds that we have to be witnesses of Jesus Christ in this time and in this place where we live. Where we live right now, in this, in this society. Because like I said, it's... it's I think I was, I was talking to Pastor Bolden not so long ago, and I was telling him, if you take all the churches in Orlando, the big mega churches and all that, and you put them together, you can come up with a budget of probably bigger than a small Central American nation. I can guarantee you that if you put the budget of all the churches in Orlando, you can probably finance Honduras, probably. So, you know, in Amos, God tells the prophet, you so much, but you bring in little. You, you plant a lot, but you bring in little. This is a description of American evangelical religion. We, we sow much. We got a lot, but we, bring in, we don't bring nothing. There's no evidence that we've planted. So uh, as a church, like I say, we're not special. We're not, we don't have the truth. We have the truth, but we're not the only ones with the truth. We have God's word. But we have to keep it in mind. We have to be conscious that when we meet together, when we teach, when we see things out there in social media and one now, we need to have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. But train ourselves in godliness. Because when we go out there and reach the people that we were supposed to reach, that God brought us together to reach, we want to reach Him with real tangible things and not silly myths that are going to leave Him eventually essentially the same. So I wanted to share that. That's been on my heart forever. And I wanted us to, to pray for ways of doing this. I mean, I was, I was telling Pastor Olo that I would like, once eventually when our house is finished, somewhere in 2020, we, um, we can have like a man's Bible study or something like that or, 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 or issues like that. Because we, we are living in, what Paul says, difficult times. Difficult times. And 
when I hear people's criticisms of the church, it's almost like they're talking about other people. You know, they're talking about somebody else. I don't know what, who they're talking about. Because that's not what I see on the Bible. It's a completely different witness to the world. It's not what I see in Christian history. It's a completely different witness. But today, that's what, you know, the, what developed here in the United States, which was great, but it has evolved into this thing that is no longer proper to be continued anymore. And I know a lot of us grew up in, in churches and, and all of that, but it's not proper for that to continue to happen. And we're praying that God do something, bring a change, a revival, whatever it has to happen. But we as a church, here where we're at, this is our job, to do what the Apostle Paul says and to immerse ourselves in these things and to teach them and to practice them as much as we can and by God's grace. So anyways, that's what I wanted to share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for your spirit, Lord. I thank you for the witness that you've left behind, Lord. Not only in your word, but throughout the ages of men who bled and died for this faith. This faith that is real, that is tangible, Lord, that makes real change in real life, Lord. And that in the past has changed nations. We pray, Lord, that you may do a work in this nation, Lord, and, and in this world, Lord. And that you may help us be faithful to your word and faithful to your truth, Lord, that we may be able to provide true healing to those who need it, and we may be able to be witnesses uh, to you in this society, Lord. I thank you for your grace, Lord. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.